Hello, you're listening to Bricks and Mortar from EG with Sarah Jackman. My guest today is Nikki Richmond, ex-property finance lawyer and former managing partner of specialist real estate legal firm Breacher, who returns to the second of our three-part series on career development. In episode one, we discuss networking, and today we're going to take a look at some of the other skills needed in early career development. Nikki, welcome back to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to see you again today. Last time, we took quite a deep dive into networking, which I know is a big subject, and you have plenty to say about that, which was brilliant. Today, we're going to be a little bit more expansive and we're going to look at a range of skills that you might need when you're first starting out in the workplace. So your your first job, possibly, and in those sort of early years, I guess the place that I was thinking it might be nice to start is really to have a think about how one builds confidence in the workplace. I mean, what's your perspective on that? I mean, where where does confidence in a professional role come from? Hi, Sarah. Nice to see you again. And thanks for having me back. Building confidence, where does it come from? Well, I think that's a really big subject. It comes both from internal and external, I believe. I also think there's a generational issue. So if I look back at my generation, which is the boomer generation, which is basically, you know, prehistoric and in the dinosaur age, it was very different. So I'm speaking to and I'm very conscious of speaking to a different generation that has different expectations and values. And I think that from my experience, people come into the office with more confidence in some ways than they did when I started. And in some ways, fewer skills or fewer or less of an ability to navigate some of the difficulties of office life. And I think that what I would say is in terms of building confidence is to look at yourself and work out where you don't feel confident and try and work on those. But actually, firstly, focus on what you really do well. So be your own cheerleader at the beginning. Look at what you do well. So don't go straight for the negative and think, oh, God, I've got no confidence in this. Try and be objective when you look at yourself. I think there's some merit in fake it till you make it. You've got to act as if. I do believe that if you wait until you're ready and you feel really confident to do a certain thing, you never will. So understand that you're never going to feel 100 percent ready to take the next step to do that presentation, to whatever it is, have that difficult conversation. You've just got to do the thing and fake it. Eventually, it will feel more natural. I think that the other thing that you need to do is to try and be objective in your own abilities in or in relation to where you are. And that's really difficult to do on your own. So when you're trying to build confidence, I think it's really important to try and get feedback from people that you respect and people who have already made it so that you understand what being good in that bit of your workplace looks like. Because you might think you need to do X, Y, Z, but actually the job doesn't expect that of you. So I think you need to work out what confidence looks like to you. And that's really individual. And that mean, Does it mean feeling comfortable standing up in front of a room of people? Does it mean writing a great presentation? So being confident is really job specific as well.
So I think there are skills in each job that you need to develop. And when you develop those and you feel competent at them, you will probably feel more confident. So it isn't a one size fits all. But I think really what I would go back to is don't be your own judge. Get yourself somebody that will tell you honestly whether you're doing well or less well in an area. And I would also say get get yourself a cheerleader as well. Get somebody who's always going to, to basically say, yeah, you're doing really well because you're going to need that because there are going to be times when you feel you're doing it wrong or everything's going wrong and you need somebody who's always consistently in your corner and you'll find that person. It's really important to have one of those in the workplace. Tell me a little bit then about going out and finding those people. I mean, you, you make the distinction there a little bit about someone who can give you feedback so possibly a mentor and then I guess you're also talking about someone who is perhaps in your I don't know in your peer group or perhaps part of your network who can be your cheerleader I mean how do you define the types of people that you would want to have in those sort of positions around you well not just one type of person. I think all of those things that you've just mentioned are areas where you can do it. it can be your network, it can be a mentor, it can be people you work with. I think it's it's probably a combination. I think it's always helpful to have somebody in the workplace whose opinion you trust and who can be, uh, without it being a formal appraisal type situation, who you can go to and say, how do you think I'm doing? And somebody who can be honest with you, but where it comes from, a good place so they can give you uh, what is sometimes called the loving boot they don't always tell you you're fabulous but you know that they're on your side but they're going to be honest about the areas where you might want to do some work or get some more support I think having a peer group network when you're a junior is invaluable because there's something so powerful about being with a group of people who go oh god yeah that's me too or I'm, I also find that really difficult because you tend to think, especially if you're in a very hierarchical office or environment where there aren't many people at your level, you've got nothing to measure yourself by. And you think it's only you that feels that way. It's only you that struggles with things. It's really refreshing to go to a group and go, yeah, I found that really difficult, too. Or I always struggle with this. And also different people will have different ways of dealing with things. So find your peer group that you can actually just go and have a drink with and just basically vent or tell stories or have a laugh with. It's really, really important to have that support system. It can be a phone call, it can be a drinks, it can be online. It doesn't really matter. But you do need people at your level that you can bounce ideas off and just sense check how you're feeling. So the mentor thing is different. There's a different power dynamic in a mentor relationship. A mentor can help you with that, I think, and, and good mentors will. But they often haven't got that much time. And often these things are really like daily. You just need to check in, just go, oh, my God, am I just overthinking that? Or does everybody feel like this? Or how do I do that thing? I don't really know how to ask. I mean, I, I know that when I started in the law, I was so frightened to ask people because I just thought I'd look completely stupid about what I should do. I used to I used to have a little network in other firms of people at my level and ring them and go, have you done one of these forms? What do you do? I have no idea. I mean, this was, of course, the days before the internet. And now the internet can give you a lot of answers to those really simple things. But actually, yeah, having a group of friends 
who you can pick up the phone to and go, you know, can I just run this by you? It's invaluable. So a mentor, yes, but I think a mentor is is slightly more removed from that. And I don't think a mentor's role is necessarily to build your confidence. It probably will do that. But to me, a mentor's role is more of a guidance and by example. This is how I did my thing. This is how I got here. You could follow that path and you could probably do something similar. I mean, I, I've done mentoring and it's a lovely thing to have, but I don't think it's going to give you the confidence that you need in a way that a support group or a network or somebody in your business that you can go and just knock on the door or pick up the phone or send a text going, can I just have a quick word? That's, to me, much more important than having a good mentor. We've talked then a, a little bit about where you might look to for support and, and having that that infrastructure, I suppose, in, in place. Let's talk a little bit about the, the sort of practical day to day of actually doing your job. In the early days of any career, you are quite keen to impress, to ensure that you're progressing, that you're managing your workload well. In terms of actually ensuring that you're producing things effectively, that you're meeting your deadlines, that you're balancing a competing workload where you might have clients who want a number of different things, um, all return to tight deadlines. What's your advice and sort of thoughts around that particular part of work life? There's about seven questions in that, Sarah. <laughs> I'll try to do my best. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Uh, I think the, the, the one where you're juggling various things and you don't know how you're going to get them done. I think once you realise you're not going to get them done, the worst thing you can do is not tell anybody. So I think that once you realise that you've got too much, and, and that may just be because you're getting work from different directions and you don't know how to say no or you don't feel able to say no, you normally have a line manager or a boss of some sort, and you must then go and speak to them and just say, these are the things that I've got to do. This is my assessment of the time it's going to take me to do those things. These are the people have told me that I need to get these things by then. This is actually not possible. And I need help in managing that and can you please give me a steer or help me to understand what the priority is and which things might be able to be moved, shifted, delegated, moved sideways. It's really down to you. I mean, if you can get in there before that happens, great, because there is a point and, and I, actually I will come back and scroll back to how to not take on too much work because it's, it's related. Because one of the things when you're a junior is you think you can't say no. But actually, you have to learn when to say no. And if you say to yourself, well, I can always do that at the weekend. Well, I'll just do that a bit more. Then you will always be working at the weekend. So first of all, you have to set your working life boundary. And only you can do that. And certain organisations have certain expectations. It might say nine to five. But, you know, in reality, everybody's working from eight till seven. It's going to be difficult for you not to work from eight till seven. Fine. But within that eight till seven, you've got to work out what's possible, which will take time and experience. And you put your hand up before you're overwhelmed. So when you feel you're at capacity and somebody asks you to do, oh, just it's a, could you just could you just do that one thing? Could I just it won't take long because what you need to say to yourself is 
if I say yes to this piece of work, what work am I saying no to? What already on my desk is not going to happen if I say yes to that person? And you have to then think about the consequences of that. And if you're not sure how to manage it, you need to speak to the people who have given you the work and tell them. But as I said before, the line manager is the first person. Because in a properly run organisation, the line manager will look at your workload and say, yes, actually, that isn't doable. Or if, uh, you know, and, 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 and should take in a properly run workplace, should actually look at it and go and speak to the various stakeholders who've given you the work and reorganise it. And if if you are getting that constantly and nobody is helping you, I would say that that's not a well-run organisation and that's not down to you. But that's a whole other podcast. So I think learning how to say no, learning what your boundaries are and not assuming that you have to do everything that's asked of you, because it's absolutely always better to do a good job than three jobs badly. So you have to work out how to navigate the personalities in the office and to say no. And people will respect you for saying no because you will say, I cannot do the work to the standard you want if I've got to do all this other work at the same time because it's just physically not possible. And that's it. Not easy, but it's the only way. And it's a habit to get into early. Otherwise, you'll be working till 11 o'clock at night. You'll be working at weekends. If you never say no, you'll never say no. But even people who work at the weekends and work at night, they say no at some point. It's just that they've decided that the point at which they say no is much further than the point that ideally they should have said no. That's just basically fast track to burnout. It's just not sustainable. So learning to say no, setting boundaries, asking for help, not making it all your responsibility because it isn't all your responsibility. You are part of a team and it is the team's responsibility to make sure that the work is shared out fairly. And if everybody in the team is working till two o'clock in the morning, then there's something wrong with the team and they haven't got enough people. It's not you. We talked last week a little bit, uh, sorry, last week, a couple of weeks ago now, about the difference between an introvert and an extrovert. (laughs) If you were an introvert, do you think it would be more difficult to say no? And what do you do in that sort of situation? I don't think that that actually has an impact on the ability to say no, because Being an introvert just means that you get your energy from different places. So you don't get your energy from a crowded room. You don't get your energy from going out with groups of people. You get it on more one to one. You do deep, intense work. I think a lot of people think introverts are sort of quietly spoken and shy. I mean, I should be the living example. That is not the case. People are shocked when I tell them I'm an introvert because I'm not shy and retiring I've got strong opinions and strong views but I think there are people who find it harder to speak up and find it hard to say no I think actually there's a quite an interesting male female divide but again I'm terrified about going there but so we won't but one of the things that I come across and observe is that the words imposter syndrome come out so very often when I'm coaching women rather than men. And actually, as a junior, I would say ban those words from your vocabulary because they label you in your own mind, actually. And I don't think they're helpful. 
I understand what imposter syndrome is. Believe me, I've lived it. But by labelling myself someone with imposter syndrome, I automatically limit myself. And so actually, it's not useful. It's one of my little bugbears, actually. The use of language and how you describe yourself is very, very important. Coming back to the question that you asked, I think what you asked me to comment on was understanding your personality type and asking for help. Now, I mean, that brings us on to another one of your subjects that I know you wanted to talk about, which was understanding your personality type uh, in the workplace. Now, that is key for me. Uh, So what, just from my own personal thing, I absolutely beat myself up many times over things I felt I couldn't do well. But actually, there were just things that I struggled a bit more with because I was introverted. What I didn't look at was the things I did really well because I was an introvert. And there's a lot of shades in between. And again, labelling, you know, I don't want the word introvert to hold me back or make people think of me a certain way. I'm just aware that it's a trait. Now, so what I draw from this and my advice would be understand your personality a bit better. So understand where conflict's going to rise. If you look at the 16 personalities test online, it's not set in stone and it changes, but it's a really useful way of looking at your personality traits. And it also, very interestingly, goes through a workplace section. So it talks about how your personality type works in the workplace, where you might struggle, what you're good at, what you're not perhaps so good at, what perhaps you're going to come into conflict with. And using that, thinking about how that applies to the stuff that you find difficult. And I'm sure that you will find things in that 16 personalities test that you go, oh, God, that's me. Yes, that's me. So there's nothing wrong with me. It's just a trait. It's just part of my personality. And I accept it. And these are the really great things. And there might be some things in there that you hadn't even thought about. So it's a really, really good way of just thinking about how to manage yourself, what you might expect, given your personality type, where the conflicts might arise, what normally happens with people of your personality type, what your strengths are. So it allows you a bit more self-knowledge. So when you're on that journey in the workplace of self-discovery, of working out how to build your confidence, at least you've got a little bit more of a steer as to what direction you might go in rather than sort of thinking, oh, I must do public speaking. If you're never going to be comfortable with that, no point. Work on doing articles instead. But if you're someone that likes public speaking, it's a superpower. Go for it. Use that skill. It's just about looking at what you do well and amplifying it. That's it. Another thing I was keen to touch on today is dealing with a difficult situation. It could be, I guess, in any context, take an example of maybe conflicting clients, priorities, perhaps someone's being demanding. How do you go about dealing with those? Are there any sort of practical tips that you ought to keep in mind? Well, I think difficult situations and difficult people are two completely separate subjects. You might have a difficult situation because of difficult people, but a difficult situation that isn't emotionally charged, i.e. I've got two clients and they both have a deadline, is very much like, how do I say no? And it's not all your responsibility as a junior. Again, if you've got clients asking you to do things, you are a junior. Go and ask somebody who's done this before. You cannot be expected to know. You don't always know the priorities of the business that you're in. 
just because somebody's shouting loudest doesn't mean you have to do it first. And that's just such a common mistake. It's doing the the thing that is more difficult where somebody's screaming, where somebody's saying, I have to have it done because, you know, because I'm going on holiday is the classic one that cuts no ice with me. So what? And work out calmly which actually is priority, which needs to be done. And if you can't work it out, then you go and get some help. You're a junior. That's not your job to work out what the business wants you to do first. Dealing with difficult people, harder, harder, difficult in all sorts of ways. Now, there's some practical things. I sometimes think with difficult people, I try and pretend that there's a wall of glass in between me and them and that their horrible words are bouncing back onto their face. That's quite a nice one. I also imagine their horrible words in a bubble popping. I also think about what are the words they're saying? I try and take away the excitement or the anger or whatever it is and go, I'm not going to listen to the emotion around those words. I'm just going to listen to the words that they're actually saying so I can understand what they want and then try and address what they want without the emotion. The best thing to do is just let them fizzle out if they're shouting, because often people just want to vent. And silence is such a brilliant tool in that situation, because when somebody is shouting and being unreasonable, if you let them go on for long enough, they will fizzle out and they'll often hear themselves and they'll go, are you there? Are you there? And you go, yes, I'm just listening. And then they'll stop because it's like a mirror. It mirrors back to them what they're doing. So it's really hard. Breathing is helpful. Box breathing in four out four, you know, hold it for four. Just keeping yourself feeling safe and not feeling attacked. But difficult people are just a part of life, unfortunately, professional life. And you just have to find a strategy that works for you. I mean, if people are abusive and and really unpleasant, then again, it's a line manager issue because no one needs to be abused. No one is entitled to treat you like a punch bag. And actually just thinking about that generationally is quite interesting because a lot of the client abuse with me came on the phone. It was people screaming on the phone. The classic one for me was a client who rang me and didn't say anything at all other than the words you've effed up. That was the first three words that they said, after which sort of all bets are off, really, because where do you go with that? But that sort of thing is less common now. There's a lot of email stuff going on and a lot of stuff going on online. And I think that there's a generational thing about not speaking to people on the phone, which is, I think, very interesting because the generation that's coming into work now live their whole lives online. And every conversation is either a WhatsApp, a text or whatever it is, is is an online conversation. And actually phoning them is deeply shocking. So they're not resilient if they're dealing with people who, from my generation, are very used to picking up the phone and going, you know, dump. That's actually deeply shocking for somebody junior. So it's something to be aware of, actually, that issue, that generational issue about methods of communication and how one comes across. Haven't got an easy answer for it, Sarah. You're obviously training to be a professional coach at the moment. Tell me a little bit about how useful that might be to someone in the early years of their career. Well, massively, of course, and I would say that, wouldn't I? 
I was quite sceptical about coaching before I did it, actually. I did think in a sort of quite superior and snobby way, if I'm really honest with myself, that it wasn't quite as important as law or anything that I'd done before. It didn't quite have the status. It's quite a new thing. And the more I've done of coaching, the more I realise how incredibly powerful it can be because you're changing people's lives if it's done well. And in terms of being a junior, where it's useful is things like building confidence, dealing with difficult situations, not knowing whether something that you're dealing with is normal or not normal, dealing with a work-related issue or a conflict in the workplace. I mean, I had somebody recently who came in and they were absolutely terrified of their appraisal. And I actually did a type of coaching that sort of scales things. And when they'd come in, they were really uncomfortable with the whole appraisal process and their level of comfort was two out of 10. And by the end of the session, it was eight out of 10, which was very good. I was absolutely delighted because we worked out how to address it. We role played it. We looked at all the stuff around it, why it felt important, what it was really about, what the person really wanted to say, what the underlying issues were. So it's really, really good for a sort of neutral way of examining limiting beliefs or catastrophizing or anxiety around stuff in the workplace. It's useful. It's like business therapy. It's not therapy. It's not open-ended. You might just have two sessions and that'd be okay. Therapy is open-ended. Therapy assumes you're not well and that you've got something to sort out and we don't know how long it's going to take. Coaching is time-limited, goal-orientated, specific. So it's measurable and specific. And so you come in with an issue and the idea is that you go out with a plan or actually a deepened understanding of why you have that issue. And it's a partnership. It's not me telling you. And whilst a lot of people do come to me and want me to tell them, what to do. And I do have to stop myself sometimes. The real learning happens when I'm helping that person come to their own view. And that's when coaching works. It's a partnership. It's not a me telling. It's definitely not, it's definitely not mentoring. It is using the person's own resources to help them come to a better realisation and to find their own answers and to have a plan for dealing with something that they're finding difficult. We've talked about a number of things today and I guess in the time that we've got available, you know, we've just been able to sort of highlight a a number of topics which people ought to be thinking about or might be experiencing in the early days of a career. Are there any other things that I haven't flagged that are worth people thinking about? And, And I guess which of those need to be prioritise when you're thinking about succeeding in a career? Another huge question. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Nikki. (laughs) Lots of good questions today. No, no, uh, uh, because they're big issues. I think that it's really important to understand yourself in your job and to understand what your core principles are. And by core principles, I mean the things that are incredibly important to you. And there are ways that you can do this. There's something I've got a little box here called the one core values, which is like a deck of cards. And you keep on going through the deck until you've only got three. 
And those three are your core principles. It's a really fascinating process because it really forces you to think about what's important to you. And the reason why I think it's important to do that is because my view is that you will be happiest and do your best work if you can find a job which aligns and allows you to live out your core principles, whatever they are. And if your job is always fighting against one of your core principles, you're never going to be happy. So if you can get that understanding at the beginning of your career, you can try and fashion your work or try and work in areas that allow you to develop yourself in accordance with your own values. And I think that's really something that for the generation coming in, they're much more alive to those issues than my generation. I didn't have a clue what a core value was. I wouldn't have known if it hit me in the face in 1986, but I do now. And I also know that where I've struggled at work or in the workplace or with clients is where I've been forced to act against any of my core values. And just for what it's worth, my core values are truth, courage and responsibility. So where I'm asked to do something which conflicts with those, I chafe and I'm really uncomfortable. Yours will be different. So understanding your core values and choosing your career and choosing how you develop, I think that's absolutely key because it's at the bedrock of who you are and everything you do. All right, Nikki, on that note, we'll leave it there today. Um, we're going to speak again in a couple of weeks' time, and we're going to be talking then about accelerating your career. So some pointers there and, and thoughts and in terms of progression. And I guess also it would be useful to talk about perhaps recognising when a career isn't for you or when you might want to go off in another direction. Just looking at all the different possibilities that might be in front of you. So we'll look forward to catching up with you again in two weeks time. And thank you again for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. That was Bricks and Mortar from EG with Sarah Jackman. For more on developing a career in real estate, see the archive of the Bricks and Mortar series at podbean.com and the EGI archive at egi.co.uk.